Being seated this morning, would you please grab your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. And we're going to be in Matthew chapter 28, uh, verses 16 to 20. And if you're keeping track, that's the end of the Gospel of Matthew. So I I looked back. Yes, someone is amazed. Yes, I am as well. Uh, I look back. The first sermon I preached on Matthew was July 26, 2017. Um, so if you, if you can do math, that was over four years ago. And here we are. We made it. And so yeah, I feel like uh, what Samwise Gamgee in, in The Lord of the Rings, he's like, if I take one more step, then I'll be further away from home than I've ever been. This is the furthest I've ever gone in preaching. And this is coming from a kid who parents, who my parents always said, you, you always start something, but you never really finish it. You're very fickle. And so mom and dad, yeah, you're wrong. Okay, so. <laughs> All right, I should stop. And we should just read the text. That's not what we're here. But it's, it's, a, it's always a joy to come to the end of a book uh, and know that you know, God has arranged his Bible in such a way that we would take it and we'd read it from beginning to end. We'd preach to it verse by verse. Uh, and that's what we're doing here. And so we come to the end of the, uh, Matthew's gospel. So Matthew 28, verse 16 to 20, hear the word of the Lord this morning. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So let's pray and ask his blessing on it. Lord, we ask that as we come to this final text, this climactic text of the Gospel of Matthew, Lord, give us ears to hear your word. Give us faith to believe your word and give us the desire and the will to properly fall in line with it and to honor the commands of it, that we may grow as disciples of our risen Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I'm guessing this experience, which I'm about to mention, is an experience that is a common one that you've had. You're in one room of your house, perhaps, let's say the living room, and suddenly a task and an objective enters your mind. And so you you leave that room of your house with that task and objective in your mind, and you enter the room to which you know that task and objective is contained in. But as you cross the threshold of that room, someone has erased your memory in that moment, and you totally forgot why you are in that room of your house. And you, you can't complete your mission because you've forgotten it. Or children, I'm, I'm guessing that one or two times, maybe, maybe not more, one or two times your parents have given you something to do. Take this and put it away in your room. Go right now to your room and put it away. Right, have you had that experience? And then you take that thing and somehow it never makes it to your room. Because in the long, treacherous, dangerous journey to your room, you got distracted somewhere. There, there, was a, there was a squirrel or perhaps a fly or another person playing with a different toy and you forgot what your task was. Well, what this illustrates is that sometimes our ambition and our intentions are no match for our memories, our forgetfulness. And as it is true of us, so it has been true of the church. Jesus has given to the church a very clear and very straightforward task and mission but it has been often forgotten and having been forgotten has often been replaced with other 
endeavors. One example of this is during the time of the Middle Ages, the medieval times leading up to the Reformation. The focus on the church had shifted almost completely from going and telling about the grace of God in Christ to coming and receiving grace from a priest who had special access to God that you did not have. And unless you came to that place and to that priest, you could not receive the grace that you needed to continue on in your process of being justified in God's sight. And so the church took on this central, it was a, it was a come and see rather than a go and tell. And it was because of this backwards focus that one of the reformers, John Calvin, who was a pastor in Geneva, when the church was closed, he would actually lock the doors of the church. And he did this because people were so accustomed to coming to the church to receive grace as it was administered only there, that he had to kind of reverse engineer their thinking by locking the doors and saying, the church is not only to gather, the church is to scatter as well. You're not just the church when you gather, you're the church when you go out into the world. And so his, his way of locking the doors was saying, go and be the church in the world to the world. Yes, we gather, but we also scatter. And one church put a modern twist on this by placing a sign at the exit of their property, which said, you are now entering the mission field. And it was their way of saying, you know, the last thing that you saw as you left their property was a reminder of the mission that God had given you. And so what the church was doing was trying to remind you that Christ's last command is to be our first priority. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Jesus gathers the disciples one last time to give them one last discipleship lesson. And in his final discipleship lesson, he gives them a final command that is to be our first priority. Go and make disciples of all nations. It's as simple and impossible as that. So what we're going to look at this morning is this final lesson, this final command from Jesus and the lessons that are contained in it and why it should be our first priority. So as Jesus gives his final command, the first lesson we're going to see is that in this scene, we see that he is the fulfillment of all scripture. So in this final command, we see that Jesus is a fulfillment of all scripture. One of the repeating themes of Matthew's gospel is that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. You've heard pieces of music where there's a, a melodic line that repeats over and over again. Well, Matthew's melodic line is Jesus fulfilled. Jesus fulfilled over and over again. He repeats that theme. And he does that because his primary audience that he's writing to is a Jewish audience who is waiting and wondering, who is this Messiah? Who is this Lord that we have waited for? Has he come? When is he going to be here? And what should we do when he comes? Well, Matthew is telling these Jewish, believe, these Jewish people who, whose minds are steeped in the Old Testament, he's come. He's fulfilled it all. Stop waiting and start worshiping. Jesus has come. He is the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament was pointing to. And he does this two ways. He does this covertly and overtly. So the overt way is he lights up a bright sign and he does that by saying, this was to fulfill what the prophet Isaiah said. This was to fulfill what the prophet Jeremiah said. And you know right there, you don't have to guess, Jesus is fulfilling prophecy. But he also does it covertly by showing us rather than telling us that Jesus fulfills prophecy. And he does that by using language and themes and kind of parallel scenes from the Old Testament in Jesus' life to say, 
hey, you've seen this before. You've heard this before. Jesus is fulfilling the Old Testament. One example of that is at Jesus' baptism. At Jesus' baptism, he enters waters. He comes out of those waters, and the Father says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And right after that baptism, right after those waters part, guess where he goes? He goes into the wilderness for 40 days. Does that have any parallels to the Old Testament? Israel going through the waters that God parts for them into the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus is kind of reliving, recapitulating Israel's history to say, I'm the fulfillment of their failures. Well, in this instance, in Matthew 28, 16 to 20, Matthew shows rather than tells us that Jesus is a fulfillment of all scripture. And, and when Matthew borrows that language and those themes and those kind of parallel scenes, we're meant to connect it to the Old Testament and, and to borrow a metaphor from my favorite childhood cartoon, Spider-Man, our Old Testament spider senses are supposed to be tingling as these things are going on, saying, I, this is the Old Testament fulfillment. And so Jesus is on top of a mountain here in Matthew 16. He gathers him on a mountain. And so picture it like this. You have all these roads coming out of the Old Testament, and all of these roads converge on Jesus on this mountain at this moment, saying he is the fulfillment of them. So I'm going to take you through some of those roads. One road is called the Greater Exodus Road. You see this in verse 16. Jesus goes on a mountain and he gathers his disciples before him at this mountain. This is a perfect parallel to what God did in the Old Testament with Israel. He brings them out of Egypt. He gathers them at the base of the mountain and he gathers them there for worship. So just as God gathered the nation of Israel in the Old Testament to the mountain to worship, Jesus is gathering his people before him on this mountain to say that a greater exodus has just happened. Instead of delivering you from bondage to physical slavery under Pharaoh, I have delivered you from the bondage of sin, Satan, and death. The greater exodus has come. Now gather before this mountain and worship. So that's one road. Another road is called the greater Moses road that leads out of the Old Testament to this mountain. Moses ended his ministry on a mountain telling the nation of Israel all that God had instructed them and giving them his final words. Well, Jesus is ending his ministry on a mountain before his disciples, giving them his final words. And one of Moses' repeated commands in Deuteronomy when he's on that mountain giving the instructions is obey all that I have commanded you. Obey all that I've, remember all that I've commanded you. What does Jesus say in Matthew 28, 20? Teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. What Jesus is saying is, The greater Moses, the prophet greater than Moses is here, and I speak the words of God with authority. Now remember them, observe them, and teach them. And another connection to Moses is this. When God first commissioned Moses to go to Egypt to deliver the Israelites, he had a question for God that was kind of perplexing. Well, God, when you send me, who am I to tell them sent me? What's your name? A person's identity was so wrapped up in their name, their character, their reputation was wrapped up in their name, and Moses doesn't know God's name. Well, God says, tell them, I am who I am, has sent you. Well, just before Jesus commissions his disciples to go, he tells them God's name, and he reveals it in a fuller, more expansive way than they've seen up to this point. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In other words, when you go to the nations and they ask who it is who sent you, well, tell them my name. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God. The same in substance, equal in power and glory. Jesus is revealing fully the name of God that we're to proclaim to the nations. Well, another road. So we have 
the greater Exodus road, the greater Moses road. We have now the greater Joshua road. When Moses ends his ministry, he hands off the baton, he hands off the mantle, as it were, to Joshua. And Moses is overlooking the land, but he doesn't go into it. That's Joshua's job. He's going to take them into the promised land. Well, it's as if Moses here is handing off the mantle to Joshua, his disciples, as he's looking out over the nations and he's saying, go into all that land with my message and claim it for my name. Take it all. Go to the nations with the gospel. And remember, Joshua was a little discouraged. He was a little uh, scared about that task. And so God promised him in Joshua 1.9, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. That command given to Joshua is repeated as the very last line of Matthew's gospel. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus is coming with his disciples by the spirit. He's giving his presence to them and he will go with them on this mission to the very end of the age. Well, let me, let me keep nerding out on you in these Old Testament connections. There's one more road that converges on this mountain. It's the new creation road. The Bible opens with this verse that we all probably know. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So the first creation starts with this pronouncement that, that God is the author of it all, that he's in charge of it all. But we know that that first creation was ruined by the rebellion of Adam. And so this world has fallen into a state of sin and misery. But what has been ruined by Adam is being remade through the death and resurrection of Christ. And so what does Christ declare to his disciples? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's signaling that what has been lost and ruined by Adam is now being restored through Jesus Christ. And the greatest loss in that first creation was the loss of fellowship with God's presence that when they were sent away from the Garden of Eden, that was the greatest misery that they experienced, that they no longer got to walk in the garden in the presence of God. What does Jesus say is the greatest gain that he gives them? Behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age, that God now is present with us through the Lord Jesus Christ. So what does this mean? It means that when you read your Bible, you need to know that the Bible is ultimately one book by one author, that has one central message that finds its focus in Jesus Christ, that he is the savior of sinners. The Bible is not ultimately a disconnected conglomeration of stories. It's one book by one author with one central message. It is not ultimately a moral fable telling you how to live a better life. It is one book by one author that has one central message in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when it comes to the scriptures, Jesus is the fulfillment of every promise. He is the solution to every problem. He is the one who meets every need that the Bible brings up. He is the resolution of every theme, the conclusion of every single story, and the substance of every shadow in the Bible. You need to know that when you read your Bible, because if you read it any other way, in in one sense you almost mistreat the Bible. You, You try to make it something other than what it is. It is first and foremost the unfolding plan of God's redemption, which centers on Jesus Christ. And after that, it gives us instructions on how we're to live and how we're to uh, follow him. So as one Puritan said, the right knowledge of Jesus Christ is the map that will lead you through the labyrinth of the scriptures. You need that map to make your way through the scriptures properly and appropriately. Jesus fulfills all scripture. Well, the second lesson 
As Jesus gives his final command, we are to grasp that he possesses all authority. He fulfills all scripture. He possesses all authority. Before there is the great commission, there is the great declaration. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. You see the logic there. The logic is important. Jesus is the author of logic, and he uses it, and we need to follow it appropriately. We do not bring the gospel to all nations so that Jesus can have authority that he does not possess. No, we go to all nations and we proclaim the gospel to all people because there is not one square inch, as Abraham Kuyper famously said, in this universe over which the risen Christ does not say, mine. Or as R.C. Sproul said, there's no such thing as a maverick molecule in this universe. He owns it all. He is in charge of it all. The gospel is to go to all nations because Christ has all authority in all places, in all domains, over everything. And this goes against the culture or goes against the current of every ism in our culture. Nobody can make absolute claims like that. Nobody can say they have all authority, that they can have a right to go to other places and tell them what to believe and do. Think of, think of secularism. Secularism, which is so pervasive in our culture, says your religion is fine as long as you keep it private. Just keep it to yourself, okay? It does not belong in the public square. The public square is for other realms that have actual access to knowledge. Christianity and religion, that, that's a privatized thing. And yet Jesus says, publish abroad that I have authority in all places, that I own every public square in every public place. It goes against secularism. What also goes against pluralism or relativism, which says, well, there's your truth and then there's my truth. And you should accept my truth and not try to convert me to your truth. We, we just get along. Let's just coexist. And Jesus says, no, no, no. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father through me. That is, there is a capital, or there's a definite article in front of truth when it comes to the scriptures. So every ism, whether it acknowledges it or not, makes absolute claims. The claim that you shouldn't tell someone your truth is an absolute claim that you absolutely should not do that. And it's a very evangelistic one. It is amazing how people, how evangelistic people are without even knowing it. They're evangelistic for their pluralism. Keep your stuff to yourself. And, and that's what I'm going to convert you to. Christianity says, no, 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 we know the one who's the way, the truth, and the life. We come not on our own authority. We come not with our own message, but with his as his ambassadors. As one pastor winsomely put it, pluralism is right in one sense. All roads lead to God. It's true. It's just that only one road leads to a positive encounter with God, namely the narrow road of faith in Jesus Christ. Every road leads to him. It's only that road, the narrow road that he has made by his death and resurrection that leads to a saving encounter with God. When Jesus' declaration of having all authority in heaven and earth we're actually meant to make a connection to an earlier scene in Matthew's gospel. In Matthew chapter 4, Satan takes Jesus up to a high mountain and he shows him all the kingdoms of this earth. And he says, these kingdoms, they can be yours if you will bow down and worship me. They can be yours right now if you'll bow down and worship me. The temptation being cast before Jesus there is take the crown and the glory without the cross and the suffering. 
take the Father's promise of receiving the inheritance of the nations without following the Father's very painful plan. I'll give it to you now without the pain, without the cross, without the suffering. Well, here now Jesus stands on top of a mountain. He looks out over all the nations, having followed the Father's plan to the T. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And he says, all nations have been given to me. All authority in heaven and earth is mine because I was faithful to do what the Father said. And I'm not just in charge having authority disconnected from salvation. I'm in charge and have authority, and therefore I can offer salvation to all people. When someone has authority in our day, we're a little concerned. What are they going to do with that authority? It seems to be more of a dangerous gift than a good gift these days in our eyes. And yet Jesus, with his authority, extends his arm and opens his heart to all nations and says, amnesty is now offered to you. I am the king with all authority, and I use my authority to offer royal pardons sealed with my own blood to all who would come to me in faith and repentance. That's how Jesus uses his royal authority. He gives a great commission with his great declaration. And that leads us to our third lesson. As Jesus gives his final command, we are to obey his commission to make disciples of all nations. He fulfills all scripture. He has all authority and we are to make disciples of all nations. Some, some have referred to this as the last will and testament of Jesus. You know, we recently uh, were told by a, a lawyer, a helpful lawyer, to go and make our will. So thank you, Matt. Um, and you write down, it says on there, the last will and testament of Andrew Leo Jacobson and Ashley Ann Jacobson, uh, so that, you know, something were to happen to us, we know how it should be executed. Well, here's Jesus. He's about to ascend to the right hand of the Father, gathering his disciples one last time, and he gives them this great commission. And there is irony in this commission. Jesus has given this declaration, all authority in heaven and earth is mine. That should conjure up in our mind royal imagery. Jesus is a king. He possesses authority. And what do kings who possess authority look like? Well, they have great power and great armies under their authority so they can defend and conquer land. Well, where is Jesus' army? This one who has all authority, where, where is his army? Look at verse 16 and 17 again. Here's his army. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Behold the grand army of our Lord Jesus Christ. 11 bumbling, fumbling, doubting disciples who he equips not with weapons, but with his word, and he sends them out to the whole world. And he says, go to all nations and make disciples. If ever something could be called Mission Impossible, if ever there was a role for Tom Cruise to really play a Mission Impossible role, this is that Mission Impossible role. And yet when you, when you read the book of Acts, so the kids in their Sunday school are studying the book of Acts, when you read the book, you come across this stunning line. These men have turned the world upside down. Acts 17.6. These 11 bumbling, fumbling, doubting disciples have somehow turned the world upside down in a few short decades. What this teaches us is that our king loves to enlist the weak and the foolish in the eyes of the world for his kingdom work. So that when the work is finished, 
it does, we're not confused about who all the glory goes to. It all goes to him because he uses the weak and the foolish in the eyes of the world for his glory. And we need to remember the type of people that God uses when we start to look at our gifts and resources and think, how in the world can the Lord use me? I do not have the gifts. I do not have the talents that I think you need to have. So if you think you're nobody special, I have good news for you. You're absolutely right. You are nobody special. And that is exactly the type of person that Jesus loves to use in his kingdom for his work. As one person put it, God loves to use nobodies who are willing to tell everybody about somebody. That's who he loves to use. And also we need to remember the type of people God uses when we're tempted to think, what could God do without me? I mean, I am that blue chip, five-star recruit that he needed to really make this team secure. You probably don't say that out loud, but there may be times when you think that. Being vulnerable uh, here, I would struggle often going on vacation because I thought, if I go on vacation, what's going to happen to Sand Harbor when I leave? I mean, they, they really need me. I mean, you should see the people in this church. I don't mean to offend you, but that is my sin nature, okay? And what I have to teach myself, this is why it's good for me. I should probably get more vacation time. It's very good. <laughs> There's no such thing as an indispensable Christian. An indispensable Christian is an oxymoron because of Christ. He is in need of no one and he is in need of nothing to accomplish his mission. Yes, God delights to use us. He delights to work through us, but do not confuse that with he needs me. He is in need of no one and nothing. And the better we know that, the better able we are to be used of him. So there's irony in this commission. Well, there's also a mandate in this commission. Look at the force of the words in verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. We've heard a lot of talk about mandates in the news. Uh, I won't get into that for controversy's sake, except to say, if you're wondering what a mandate is, here's one right now. If you're, if you're confused by what a mandate is, here is an example of a mandate. The king who has all authority giving a command, go and make disciples of all nations. I love how Hudson Taylor, the missionary to Inland China, he said it. The Great Commission is not a great suggestion to be considered. It is a great command to be obeyed. There is no suggestions here. There is a command here. And his last command is to be our first priority as disciples. And if it's not a priority for us personally or corporately as a church, we have to wonder, have we fallen into the trap of Revelation 2? We've forsaken our first love. Have we forgotten the wonder and glory of the gospel? Because J.C. Ryle says this, and it cut me to the heart when I read this, it may well be questioned whether one knows the value of the gospel if they do not greatly desire to make it known to the whole world. There is, as I said in past, a great chasm between the worth of Christ and our estimation of his value, and we want to bridge that gap. So Paul said in his own ministry, it was the love of Christ that compelled him. The love of Christ compels me, constrains me to spread the gospel. Well, does it compel you at all? Does the love of Christ compel you? Do you look at Christ's commission here and do you feel spiritually numb? Or do you feel just burdened by an overwhelming sense of guilt? I haven't done enough. Or do you think, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Therefore, the love of Christ compels me. Jesus doesn't give this command here 
so that you would feel burdened by guilt, but that you would feel compelled by love as he has poured it out on us that we might bring it to the nations. Remember, every command he writes, even this commission, is written by his nail-pierced hands. It is a good command for our good. Well, it's also a focused commission. There's a specific thing that Jesus has in mind for his church. Notice the the specificity of it in verse uh, 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Not make someone who lines up with your political party. Not make someone who agrees with you on every single theological point. Not someone who looks exactly like you and, and does everything the same way. Make disciples. A disciple is one who submits to and follows after Jesus. Our goal is to bring people before the feet of Christ so that they might know him and follow after him. We're not to make copies of ourselves. We're to make followers of him. And so part of what it means to be a disciple of Christ is that you're constantly looking to help others become and grow as disciples of him. Essential to the definition of following Christ is to seek others that they might follow after him as well. Disciple making is not an extra credit assignment for the extra spiritual. It is just the curriculum that Jesus gives all of his followers. Make disciples of me. And discipleship begins when you ask yourself this question. How can I intentionally help those God has placed around me to know and follow Jesus better? Ask yourself that question. How can I intentionally help those God has placed me around to know and follow Jesus better? Let me tell you, when you begin to ask this question and answer it, it will transform your own following after Christ. Because there is no greater impetus to your own spiritual growth, no greater miracle growth to your own spiritual growth than when you actually invest in someone else's growth in Christ. Oftentimes in my own spiritual life, when I'm feeling like I'm I'm stunted, like I'm plateaued, it's because I'm not on the lookout for helping others grow in Christ as much as I am my own. And when you're investing in others, it only gives you more zeal for your own growth in Christ. And the reason I say this is because our relationship with Christ is meant to be both intaking and outpouring. Both of them, in balance, not just one or the other, both of them. So think of it like the relationship between eating and exercising. You need both. If all you do is eat, which I do love to eat, but you don't exercise, you become an overstuffed consumer, which is not good. But if all you do, and and many will amen this, if all you do is exercise without eating, it will, see, it will soon leave you an empty expender. So there are times, I, I love running, and there are times where I didn't eat dinner the night before for whatever reason, and I wake up, and I'm trying to run, and I can feel, I'm lightheaded, and I just know that my body did not get the energy it needed. And then there are times when I eat, but I don't run, and my body is yelling at me, you, you need to burn this food. Like, do something with it. Get out there. And that's our relationship with Christ. We're meant to be intakers and outpours, not just consumers, and not just expenders, but a balance of intaking and outpouring. And so the task of making disciples is as small as the four walls of your house. It is as local as the neighborhood you already live in and the church you already attend, and as global and big as every corner of the earth where Christ has not been named. There is, there, there's room for everyone to be disciple makers. 
And let me give a special word to the parents in this room. Let me pass along a wise piece of counsel that I got from, from Mike Bruce. So he gave this to Ash and I. We were sitting around uh, our dining room table, and Mike said to us in one of his Mike-isms, he's got a lot of them, he's going to publish a book someday, I'm, I'm sure. He said, remember that in this season of life, you're called to home missions. We thought, it's, it's got to be profound, but we were very confused. We didn't quite know what he meant. And then Mike continued on as, as he does. He said, home missions is a space between your front door and your back door. That is your primary mission field right now. And that has constantly stuck with me as I come in my home, as I look at my kids. That is my primary mission field right now. So parents, you have a captive audience right now in your home. Uh, and, and they have uh, parents who are given to them to disciple them. So parents, do not neglect your home mission assignment. I was, I was at a church one time and uh, a parent came in. They said, hey, where's your youth group? And the pastor pointed to the sanctuary where corporate worship happened. He said, our youth group's right there. And you happen to be one of our youth pastors. And he was kind of being, uh, he was giving a pun. But his point was appropriate. You, there is no such thing as outsourcing your children's discipleship. You can supplement it, but you cannot outsource it. We are not here to outsource the discipleship of your home. We are here to supplement it and to help you in that. So remember your home mission assignment. But as you're thinking about your home mission assignment, do not lose sight of Jesus' global mission assignment, which has a focus here in Matthew 28, 19. Make disciples of all nations, of every single nation in all places. In Genesis 12, God calls Abraham, who's Abram at that time, and he says, through you, I am going to bless all the families or all the nations, all the peoples of the earth. Well, Matthew starts his gospel with mentioning that Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. He has that promise of Genesis 12 in his mind that he's going to be the blessing to all the nations when he announces who Jesus comes from. He comes from Abraham. And he has that in mind here as Jesus gives his commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. He is great Abraham's greater son who is bringing to pass the promise that was given to Abraham. And in Revelation 7, 9, and 10, we get to peek into the future and see what the success of that mission looks like. Listen to the success of that mission. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from every tribe and people and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and singing with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's the future worship service that you will get to participate in if you're in Christ. And what a worship service it will be. But it's not yet one that has been actualized because the task remains unfinished. God has a global purpose for his glory in Christ and it is an unfinished task because if you were to go today onto joshuaproject.net, which is a a website devoted to the mission uh, goal of reaching all nations, you would see that the world is comprised of 17,416 people groups. So a people group being a group with its own distinct culture or language and its own area. And of those 17,000, 4,993 of those people groups are considered frontier unreached groups, which means that they have to their claim less than 0.1% of believers among them. That is a 
massively small number. And so this includes the 30 million Hausa people in northern Nigeria, the 19 million Moroccan Arabs, the 12 million Sanani Arans in Yemen, the 16 million Azeris in Iran, the 11 million Uyghurs in China, and I could go on and on and on. And I've only named five of the almost 5,000 frontier unreached people groups in the world who have less than 0.1% Christians among them, seeking to bring the gospel to them. And that's just one part of the mission because there exists alongside unreached people groups, Bibleist people groups, sometimes the same, sometimes different. In English, we have just around 100 translations of the Bible that we can choose from to read. When it comes to Bible reading, our problem is not one of access. It's usually one of apathy. We'll compare that to the fact that there are over 5,000 language groups that do not have access to one single complete translation of the Bible in their language. And then there are 250 million people in the world for whom their language does not have a single verse of scripture translated that they could read. So the task remains unfinished. Revelation 7, 9, and 10 hasn't happened yet because there are still about 2 billion people that have not heard the name of Jesus and cannot read the name of Jesus in their own language. And so by God's grace, I want Sand Harbor to be an instrument in God's hand for the completion of that task. Yes, we're a small church, but God has blessed us immensely being in the position we're in, in the place that we're in, at the time we're in, with the prosperity that we have. And so with our church in mind, we have set an initial goal of taking 10% of all the contributions and offerings that come into our church and setting it aside for the purpose of missions. And we want the bulk of that 10% that we set aside for missions to go to supporting missionaries who are working to reach unreached people groups and Bibleless people groups. And we're, we're in that process right now. We're kind of you know, starting from the ground floor and we're working slow as molasses in February, but by God's grace, we're gonna get there. So for example, this past Tuesday, Claus Freeland and I, we got to interview a Bible translator who was up until recently in Afghanistan. You can understand why he had to leave Afghanistan, but he's translating the Bible into Turkmen. 4.6 million people are Turkmens in Afghanistan and Turkmenistan and Uzbekistan, and they do not have the Bible in their language. And he's working to do that, so we want to be able to support him because we want his last command to be our first priority as believers. And if we're honest, when it comes to our priorities, too often we are much more passionate and devoted to so many other things that do not equal this level of priority. That we are, we are committed to our worldly comforts. We are committed to our temporary pleasures. We are passionate about our sports team more than we are God's global purpose for his glory in Christ. And so what are some ways that you can recalibrate your heart so that you are more passionate and committed to the Great Commission, especially the all nations part. Let me just give you a few things that the Lord has used in my own life. One of them is missionary biographies. Doesn't sound that amazing, but it is amazing to read the biographies of people like Hudson Taylor and William Carey and Adoniram Judson and John Patton and Elizabeth Elliot. That will cause some sparks to fall in your heart to get a passion for missions, to hear how God used real people, ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Uh, I would say include unreached people groups and Bibleist people groups in your regular prayers. What we pray for is often what our heart gets aligned to. So go to joshuaproject.net, download their prayer guides, and include them in your regular prayers. In terms of your home missions focus, I would say 
have people that you regularly pray for by name who do not know Christ, who you want to see come to Christ, and pray that God would make you a faithful witness and give a faithful testimony to the gospel in their lives. Because what we put on our heart and our prayers will shape and align our hearts. And I say the most essential thing you can do to make Jesus' last command your first priority is to make the glory of God and the worship of God your first priority. In some ways, my, my kind of theme of the sermon is a misnomer. His last command isn't quite our first priority. It's actually our second priority. Our first priority should be worship because worship is the focus and fuel of missions. And let me close with a quote that I read. I had took a global missions class in seminary. And because Piper was a president, we read his book, Let the Nations Be Glad. And when I read what I'm about to read to you, it caused a miniature Copernican revolution in my own heart. Here's what Piper said in Let the Nations Be Glad. He said, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. The Great Commission is first, delight yourself in the Lord and then declare to the nations, be glad and sing for joy in God. No one will be able to rise to the magnificence of the missionary cause who does not feel the majesty of Christ. There will be no big world vision without a big view of God. There will be no passion to draw others into worship if you have no passion for worship. God is pursuing with omnipotent passion a worldwide purpose of gathering joyful worshipers for himself from every tribe and people and tongue and nation. And he has an inexhaustible enthusiasm for the supremacy of his name among the nations. Therefore, let us bring our affections in line with his and set aside our worldly comforts for his global purpose. Let that sink in and let that shape your heart according to his. Let's pray. Our great and glorious God, we long for the day when your glory covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. And Lord, to that end, may we get a global vision for your global passion. Lord, may you help us here in this area, in this small church, to make a big splash for the cause of your kingdom. Lord, we pray that we would know that you bless us and you have blessed us so that we might be a blessing to others. May we see all the gifts you have given us as a means of reaching others, not of increasing our comfort. But we do enjoy all the great gifts you've given us. What a paradise we live in. And yet may we know and remember that there are many who do not know you, who have not heard about you. And may you cause us to be burdened for them. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, to further impress God's global purpose on our hearts, we're going to sing the missionary psalm of the Bible, Psalm 67, which was all about let the nations be glad and sing for Let's stand together on page 9 and 10. We're going to sing a version of Psalm 67 to the tune of the church's one foundation. Sing with me.